Welcome to Season 8 of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a fascinating journey into the lives of top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories many you've never heard before. I'm your host, George Hoffman, and please follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and through our partnership with Last Word on Sports Media Podcast. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is proudly sponsored by Mr. Duct, Chicagoland's premier comprehensive air duct cleaning and ventilation for residential and commercial properties. Their motto is simple. They're upfront and honest. Find them on the web at mrductcleaning.com. This week, we feature Chicago sportscaster and all-purpose TV personality, Ryan Cheverini. I think if COVID never happens, we're still on the air. I think COVID changed so many things and hurt so many businesses. Because if you look at our ratings, we were number one when we got canceled. We were number one in May and we were done in September. And it was really a, a shock to us all. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of people lost jobs over that. He's a sports guy at heart, but Ryan Cheverini has also made his mark in the media business as an actor, host, interviewer, and musician. He's become a staple on Chicago TV, being a sports anchor and reporter and hosting a very popular show called Windy City Live. Unfortunately, the multi-award winning show was canceled in 2021, but not Cheverini's career. He was a standout football player at Colorado, an avid chess player, and was once voted the city's most eligible bachelor and its best-looking male TV personality. What more can you ask for, Ryan Cheverini? So, tell me a story I don't know. First off, George, that's a heck of an introduction. Did my mom write that? That was fantastic. Actually, uh, she know, did I write it. I didn't tell you that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about this. First off, I love the concept of what you're doing. Tell me a story I don't know, um, because we have heard so many of the same stories over and over, I guess, in Chicago. And I guess the first thing that jumps in my mind is the first year I was here. So for you to say I'm a Chicago staple is the most humbling and, and biggest honor you could give me because I literally got here in 2006 and I thought I was going to be here for probably two years and I was going to do something else or move somewhere else. I did one winter in Chicago and I was like, wow, I don't know if I could live here. <laughs> and here I am uh, 17 years later. But my very first year, I was a young sportscaster under Mark Greco and Jim Rose, and um, I was excited to be in Chicago covering, you know, our four major sports, uh, plus all the other professional sports that we have. In 06, if you remember, George, uh, the Bears went to the Super Bowl. They went to the Super Bowl with Rex Grossman. And Grossman slips as he felt the pressure from Anthony McFarlane and spin. Even the inside players get it done. That's the first sack of the night, and Grossman again can't find the handle. And now the second sack of the evening. And uh, we went to Miami, and covering the Super Bowl, as you know, is absolutely exhausting. I mean, we were waking up at 4 a.m. You're doing live shots, you know, 5, 6, uh, noon, then four, five, six, and 10, you're live on every show. So I was down there with Jim and with Gian Greco, and they even flew our news people down there. Ron Majors was down there doing the nightly news from Miami for two weeks. And uh, Ron had a house there. So we wanted to go see his house in Miami. Mark and I went over there. 
we're exhausted and we know we got it still another 15 hour day ahead of us. So uh, after visiting with Ron for a little while, both Mark and I were like, man, we, we need we need to take a nap. Ron, can we take a nap? And he's like, oh, yeah, just um, go upstairs, make a left. And there's a bedroom right there. You know, a couple beds in there. Ron straight faced, you know, we're thinking, oh, great. There's going to be a couple, you know, king size beds. We go upstairs and we walk into this room and there's bunk beds. Oh, how there's, convenient. Yeah, there's bunk beds because it's for Ron's <laughs> grandkids. Uh, thankfully, there were two sets of bunk beds. So it wasn't like Gian Greco and I had to fight over who got top bunk and bottom bunk. So we literally, I, I mean, I don't know Mark that well yet. You know, I'm just a young guy. I know he's a legend in Chicago. I had only been working with him for, I don't mean, eight months at the time. And, and I'm getting undressed. He's getting undressed. And uh, we're trying to hang up our suits so that they don't get wrinkled. And, and I just remember, you know, you never want to look over too much, right? You want to give a guy his privacy. But I remember, uh, A, how tan Gian Greco was. Like, it just the tannest Italian guy I've ever seen. And I, I'm Italian, but he, like, totally uh, changes the game when, when it comes to, uh, you know, being really authentic Italian. That, and he, he was like, he had, like, the Magnum P.I. chest hair, you know? <laughs> and I'm like in my early 20s I have like five hairs on my chest he's like full like Italian stud you know tan you know all he was missing was like the gold chains I don't think he had any gold chains on but um I remember uh we both passed out and then you know it must have been like you just felt like you closed your eyes for two minutes and we were back up put our suits back on and uh, we were back at it. Another 15-hour day. I want to go back to uh, 2012. You were voted the most eligible bachelor that year. Okay, it's 11 years later. Are you still the city's most eligible bachelor? <laughs> I don't know about most eligible, but I'm still not married. And uh, yeah, I, my, my dad and mom were married uh, like seven times between the two of them. They were married seven times between the two of them. Yes, not to each other every time, but a lot, a lot of different marriages, and I have a lot of half-brothers, and um, you know, my twin brother ended up marrying his high school sweetheart, and that has worked out. They've still been married for 20 years. Well, I have to tell you something. Honestly, Ryan, I'm jealous. You're 45. You don't look a day over 30. Do me a favor. Give me your secrets for looking so young. I promise I won't share them with anyone. Uh, Tom Cruise actually sent me his regimen. It's oh, uh, is yeah. that so? <laughs> <laughs> you know, actually, what what my secret is um, is not to get sunburned. I mean, Gian Greco looks great, but his skin can take the sun. I think honestly, is staying out of the sun is the number one best way to preserve yourself. Now, <laughs> you have been in Chicago since, as you mentioned, two thousand six. But I'll bet few people know you come from quite a sports family background. I do. You know, my twin brother, Darren, was drafted. He played for Cleveland, Dallas, and Atlanta. And we both played college football together at Colorado. Best thing, you got a built-in best friend. The worst thing is uh, he's really, really messy, and he would steal my clothes, and then he would put chocolate stains on them, and then put them right back in my closet. So it was just the best thing for me. <laughs> <laughs> And it's funny because when he got drafted, you know, everybody used to ask me, how come, how come you didn't play pro football like your brother? And I always said, um, 
for the same reason why you didn't. <laughs> they didn't. They didn't want me. You know, <laughs> I wasn't good enough to play at the NFL level, but I was blessed enough to play in college. And I played for Gary Barnett, who uh, put me on full scholarship. And of course, yeah. know Gary from Northwestern. Uh, but my father was a high school captain of his hockey team. He grew up in Providence, Rhode Island, ended up playing a few games in the IHL and, um, and with the Long Beach Gulls. And so he he's like the hockey guy. So I grew up playing hockey, even though I grew up in Southern California. We were like, you know, it was hard to find ice. But uh, I grew up playing hockey because of him. And his cousin, who most people mistake for my uncle, his name is Tony Cheverini, and fun fact, he fought Sugar Ray Leonard in 1979 at Caesars Palace. Howard Cosell calls the fight. This is third round action, and Leonard looks as sharp as I have seen him. I began to wonder in the Geraldo fight, good left by Cheverini, maybe his cleanest blow of the fight. It's amazing. He went five rounds with him. Obviously, he didn't win. But five rounds of Sugar Ray and his prime is not bad. And the coolest thing, the full circle moment came when we had Mike Tyson on the show. Is that how you stay in shape now? You just move and groove? No, I chase babies and do you know, that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Don't go nowhere. Stop, 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 stop. All right. Well, we know that when you were the champ and, and every great boxer is a great uh, jump rope. No, I haven't done this in 20 years. Man, come on, don't get me into this. Come stuff. on. We want to, you guys want to see him jump rope? It's like riding a bike. We've had him on Windy City Live three times, actually. I remember the very first time he came on, I was like, oh, I want to meet this guy, you know, but you're kind of intimidated. And he was so kind and so humble. But it was really cool because I went up to him, introduced myself. I said, hey, Mike, I'm Ryan Cheverini. And the first thing out of his mouth, George, he was like, Cheverini, there's a fighter named Cheverini. <laughs> and I go, yeah. I'm like, Tony Cheverini, that's actually my second cousin, but most people think he's my uncle. And uh, I go, he fought Sugar Ray Leonard in 79. And he goes, yeah, he goes, he also fought and he named another fighter that he knew Shiverini fought. And it goes to show you his boxing knowledge. You know, I think that people mistake Mike Tyson for not being incredibly intelligent. But when it comes to boxing, I don't think there's anybody with a higher boxing IQ because you know, as you see the documentaries about Tyson and Custom Auto, having him watch all the old footage and all the old fighters, uh, he knows so much about boxing. But he every time he would come on the show, he'd be like, hey, how's your uncle doing? You know, how's Tony doing? It was, he goes, man, he was a good fighter. And I was like, this is incredible that Tyson knows who he is. I have interviewed a lot of people in the radio TV business and their road started in small markets. You began yours in Great Falls, Montana, which I think has a population of somewhere in the neighborhood of 60,000. And the first thing I think of when it comes to sports there is skiing. Oh, yeah. The skiing. I did cover some um, some ski like jump events. But you know what I covered the most, George? Rodeos. Rodeos. I've never rodeos. seen I've never seen a rodeo. It is a sight to see, and uh, the clientele that's at some of the rodeos, that oh. is a story in itself. <laughs> but uh, I knew nothing about rodeos, and you know, I always felt like I was broadcasting to more livestock than humans. When I was <laughs> and uh, when I got my first paycheck, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. It was, I think I made like $13,000 in the year 2000. 
And this is a full-time 40 hours a week shooting, writing, editing, producing your own stuff and shooting rodeos and then having to run back and cut the highlights and uh, on the deck to deck, you know, it was way before computer editing and then trying to run to the set and uh, and do your sports cast. Think back now, I don't know how, how any of us did that, but um, yeah, I learned a lot about rodeos because I didn't know anything about so you go from Great Falls to Denver. That's a great stepping stone to Chicago. Skiing big there, but so are the four major sports. And I imagine that's where you got your feet really wet. Yeah, it was amazing. You know, I was 24 years old and the station I interned at, KUSA, one of the best stations in the country, uh, they called me. I was five days away from packing my things and moving to a small town in Tennessee, uh, Chattanooga. Chattanooga, Tennessee was going to hire me. And I went out and looked at the job. Uh, the The news director didn't show up to work the next day. And I was like, I can't believe this. He he didn't show up to work. Turns out he had food poisoning and oh. he was super sick. So he didn't show up to work. So I flew back to Montana thinking, oh, I didn't get the job. He calls me and about five days later or six days later, and he's like, I'm so sorry. I was so sick. I really wanted you to sign the contract and offer you the job before I left. Uh, I'll, I'll, I, you know, if you want to take the job and he sent the money and it was, you know, a little better than Montana, but certainly not getting rich. And he sent me the contract in the mail. I think it was the day I got the contract in the mail to sign. I got a call from KUSA and they said, Hey, I don't know what your situation is, but you know, we want to fly you out here. And I said, I'm right about to move. Like I already had my U-Haul everything, George. I was about to drive there and, and KUSA within two days flew me in, offered me the job. And then I had to call Chattanooga. Bill Wallace, I'll never forget, the news director was so cool about it. I call him, I say, hey, Bill, uh, I know I'm supposed to be there in a few days, but you know, my dream station called me and offered me a job, KUSA. And he said, Denver? I said, yeah. He goes, oh man, you gotta go. He's like, you know, I knew you'd end up in a big market eventually. We were just hoping to steal you for a couple of years. When's the last time you had your air ducts cleaned? Here's the best solution, Mr. Duct, a name Chicagoland has trusted for over 20 years. They work on your furnaces, air conditioners, and do repairs, maintenance, and installations. In other words, they're your all-around company for air quality choice and more. Mr. Duct provides on-site commercial ventilation cleaning estimates. You'd be hard-pressed to find better. So give them a call at 888-4-MR-DUCT. That's 888-467-3828. And Mr. Duct is the right choice to clean your residential dryer vent. They do a full inspection to make sure your dryers are running properly. Mr. Duck works with schools, health facilities, and office buildings to make sure you're breathing clean air. Their testimonials are endless, and with good reason. So don't think twice when you're ready to work on air ducts, dry vents, and so much more. Just think Mr. Duck, 888-4-MR-DUCT. That's 888-467-3828. And find them on the web at mrductcleaning.com. When you arrived here, you mentioned his name before, Mark Jean Greco. And and I know that when you came here, Mark had already been here for, what is it, 24 years or something like that. What was it like to work with him? I've known Mark for a little over 40 years. And 
I don't know, perhaps the best way to describe him is a great pro with a twisted mind. Yeah, you know what? He's so quick-witted. He's so clever. I mean, he really did change the game and the and sort of the, you know, he really shaped what a great sportscaster should be. So for me, it was, you know, an incredible mentorship that I got from him firsthand. You know, he welcomed me in and he was great to me from the very beginning. Um, but he really sort of taught you the standard of, of how to be great. Things are finally looking up for the Sox, coming off consecutive series wins for the first time this season. But as suspected, Mike Clevenger still bothered by that wrist injury. He was supposed to start tomorrow's game. Instead, he goes on the 15-day injured list. But hey, the show must go on. That guy is in the office early. He's late to leave. He's always trying to think of something different and clever, some other way to do it and deliver it. And obviously, I think on his Twitter account, he he's calls himself cynical and a smart ass. That's very true. But you know what? He was so cutting edge. And the reason why you paid him that kind of money and he made some of the best money the business has ever seen is because you never knew what he was going to do or say next. So for me, being a young guy and, and looking for someone to look up to and the fact that we had that Italian connection, um, <laughs> you know, I think it was it was the best training ground that I could have. So it's five years later and there's a nationwide search to host this new show right here at Channel 7 called Windy City Live. So we're talking about candidates like Drew Lachey, John Kelly, and amazingly enough, the rather combustible Stephen A. Smith. I can't imagine him hosting this show. So why did you get the job, and how did it transform your life? Yeah, well, it was like an American Idol audition. I remember we had a, uh, we had a cocktail party at the Witt Hotel with the top 50 candidates top 50 candidates uh, you know there was like there was a party for 50 candidates yes and when you walked in and you checked in they gave you a, a folder and it told you of oh, the seven people that you're going to be auditioning with the, the following day the next morning you were going to audition so you're reading people's bios and the idea was to do sort of a meet and greet with the people that you were going to be auditioning with to see if you can establish some type of chemistry so it's not the first time you see them is on set so I remember I had like, and and all the men were, were uh, for the most part, the men were paired with the women. They did do a couple of auditions, I think, with all women. But in my folder, I had, you know, eight different, you know, female anchors that I was going to be auditioning with. I did not audition with Val. And I didn't know Val. I, I knew of her. And to this day, George, if you bring this up, it's a sore subject because she always says, oh, you never even talked to me at that cocktail party. You were too busy talking to all the other ladies. And I said, I, I was talking to the people that I was going to audition with. Can so you please go back for a moment, Ryan Val. Explain to the listeners who Val is. Hey, that's my line. <clears throat> Today on Windy City Live, happy anniversary, Chicago. From how we've changed to the memories we've shared, it all began here, and we're thanking you. Now here are Val Warner and Ryan Cheverini celebrating 10 years, Chicago. So Val was at WGN at that time. She's uh, She's been my co-host for now 12 years because we're still doing Windy City Weekend. But um, she was a traffic reporter at WGN and she was there for the audition. 
And it ended up being us at the very end, but they didn't pair us together until maybe round three, because they probably did like five rounds of this. And I remember I was covering the Bears at the time. So I had to do my auditions all back to back to back to back so that I could go to Hallis Hall. So mine were early in the morning. You did seven minutes with about seven different people. And the idea was to talk about a news story, a pop culture story, and a personal story. And after doing this six, seven times, that is a lot. So I remember the night before the audition, I got on like Huffington Post and I was printing all these different articles and I was looking at people's bios and I was kind of like saying, oh, this story might be good for, for this person. This story might be good for her. You know, maybe we can talk about this. Maybe we have this in common. And I laid them all out. And the next morning I had folders for all the people I was auditioning with. And I said, hey, these are some of the stories that I looked at last night. If you want to maybe you know, talk about this on the air. And it really helped. I mean, preparation. And that's, you know, another thing you learn from Gian Greco. It's like, you never, and Costas always said, he'll never go into an interview, not prepared. And he goes, nobody's going to prepare for this interview more than I will. And that kind of stuff goes a long way, you know, being prepared for it. And, and I kind of went into it thinking, Hey, if I don't get it, I still got a job, right? I, I always wanted to make the transition to, into entertainment but hey, if I didn't get it, I still have an entertainment job. Whereas I think a lot of the people in that audition process were out of work hosts from E and some of these other entertainment networks, and they were really trying to get back in. But yeah, Stephen A. Smith auditioned with Val. And we've we've actually shown that tape on Windy City Live. And it would have been, could you imagine how different that show would have been? Oh my Stephen goodness, had? no. Yeah, it was wild. It was it was really like, uh, you know, American Idol. And every night you'd audition, you'd wait for the call and you wanted to know if you were still in the running. And I remember like when the phone would find, finally ring, you'd be all excited. And then I was at spring training. This was in October, George. And I didn't get named the host until February. I was at spring training in the Cubs press room. And I remember I got the call. And I, and I look at the phone number and I know it's somebody calling from channel seven and I step out and it was Emily Barr on the other line and mm -hmm. she, congratulations. Uh, we would love for you to be the next host. What they were calling morning rush as the working title. And I actually pitched Windy City Live as the name and they put it through some focus groups and then they picked it. So it's kind of cool to be able to name the show that I got to host and, um, you know, I made so much money in the, in the naming rights. Actually, I made nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Good try. Well, this was an extraordinary show. And obviously, it really fit who you are. You had extraordinary guests and you interviewed a who's who. So tell me a story or two about a few of them from the best, perhaps, to maybe eh, the toughest or worst. Well, I, I, you know, what jumps at me right away is I got to interview Al Pacino, which was one of the coolest experiences ever. He was so nice. As soon as I, you know, talked to him, I said hi to him. He's like, oh, Ryan, I, I love Chicago. You know, what's your favorite restaurant? You know, he's asking me questions and it's it's just crazy. He's one of the greatest actors ever. And you're you're just thinking about all of the things that he's done and all the famous lines that he has. And I remember I, I debated asking him this question, but I, I couldn't, I'd been remiss if I wouldn't have asked. I said, uh, Al, what's the line that people throw at you the most when you're walking through an airport? And he goes, oh, uh, 
he goes, you know, people usually say, uh, hoo -wah. Of yeah. course. Goes, yeah, he goes, of course. Or, he goes, or uh, <laughs> say, say hello to my little friend now. <laughs> you know? And then he goes, or, you know, depending on how old they are, they might say, I'm going to give you an offer you can't refuse because, you know, I say that in The Godfather. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm quite aware of that. But uh, I mean, so cool to hear him reciting some of his own lines that are so iconic. And he was so humble and kind. And uh, I, I interviewed him actually with uh, in, in, in a, like a junket format. So every 10 minutes, there's somebody else interviewing him. He was not in the Windy City studio. Didn't you try to get Michael Jordan on the show? What happened? Oh, so when <laughs> they opened Jordan's restaurant, the one on Michigan Avenue, because you know he's had a couple. Yes. Michigan Avenue opened. I'm in my gym and my executive producer calls me and goes, Michael Jordan's at his restaurant. You got it. You got to go over there. And, and I'm like, okay, okay. I hang up the phone. I, I don't even shower. I go and I change into something that looks presentable. You know, I'm wiping the sweat. And... I'm nervous as heck because I'm thinking, well, what am I going to do? I'm going to go in there and ask Michael Jordan to go on Windy City Live. So uh, I had a good friend who was a producer at the time, Jesse Kalin, and, and she ended up meeting me at the restaurant. So I thought oh, it would look a lot more natural, right? Like we go in there, we grab a cocktail or appetizer. So we go into the, we go into the restaurant. And there's literally one table open, George. There's one table open. And Michael Jordan is standing right behind the table. And there's like this little cutout at, the, at Jordan's restaurant. He's standing behind it, but you can see him playing his day through it. So what do we do? We sit at that very table in the bar area. And he's standing right here about a foot away. And we're trying to act calm and cool. You know, I think we like ordered an appetizer and, and we're like, okay, what should we do here? What should, you know, what should we do? And usually I'm not sh a shy person, but there's something about Jordan's aura that you just don't really want to, you know, I didn't want to push. And I had interviewed him before as a sportscaster, but it's like, he's in his own restaurant. He's kind of just hanging. And uh, at some point she just breaks the ice and goes, Hey, hey, Michael, uh, I'm Jesse Kalin. I work for Windy City Live, you know, a show here in Chicago. He was a very nice, you know, he's like, oh, how's it going? And I shook his hand and we had just had his mom on our show. So that was sort of my icebreaker. Mm -hmm. they, you know, we just had your mom on, on our show and it was great. And she told some great stories about you. He said, Michael, you are our dream guest to get on the show. And if you would ever consider doing our show, that would be the pinnacle for us. And uh, he was very nice and he was very, very, uh, you know, I guess I, he was he he was in, amused. Let's put it that way. And he was smiling, you know, that Jordan smile. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm really busy, you know. And, you know, Michael doesn't do any TV, really. I mean, I think the Oprah show was probably the last national TV appearance you saw him on. So uh, needless to say, we didn't we never got him on. But I tried, and then I ran into him maybe a year or two later at RPM Italian. And I'm at the bar waiting for my table, and he walks up right next to me, and he kind of gives me a little elbow. So he, he I guess he'd recognized me at least, and who knows if he, he probably didn't know my name, but I think he knows knew my face. And he goes, hey, what's, what's happening? I go, hey, are you going to do my show? He's like, can you let me do some dinner first? I said, yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> So he orders a cocktail 
from the from the server and or from the bartender and she doesn't fan fan out or anything she just gets the cocktail order you know rings it up or whatever and um he takes the drink he cheers me and then he goes and he has dinner and she just looks at me and she goes that was so effing cool she <laughs> said the word she freaked out when he left but she was so professional i was actually blown away she didn't go oh my god michael jordan no, she was cool, calm, cool, collected. But when he walked away, she she had to let it out. Did he ever do the show? Never did the show. He never did the show. Never did the show. Why in the world was the show canceled? Great question, George. I think if COVID never happens, we're still on the air. I think COVID changed so many things and hurt so many businesses. Because if you look at our ratings, we were number one when we got canceled. We were number one in May. And we were done in September. And it was really a, a shock to us all. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of people lost jobs over that. And we, we have downsized the show. And we're still doing a weekly version of it on Fridays, which I'm very thankful for. Uh, but it, it's been a tough, it's it's a tough thing to let go because you I knew what I had when I had it. I think there's a lot of us in in life that you never realize what you have until it's gone. You've mm -hmm. all heard that expression, but it's very true. But I knew how lucky I was doing the show every day, having a live audience, having some of the biggest celebrities and 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 impactful Chicagoans on the show. I mean, everybody from, you know, Jimmy Kimmel did the show. John McCain did the show. Uh, you know, the, we had The Rock on. Uh, John Travolta, which another one of my favorite stories, my dad has a song on the Pulp Fiction movie soundtrack right at the end of the movie. So my dad played in a band called The Lively Ones. They opened for Sonny and Sharon, the Beach Boys in the 60s. And they had a couple of hits. One of the hits was called Surf Rider. And it made it to like maybe 15 on the charts. Quentin Tarantino was a big fan. So he put that song on Pulp Fiction. Because if you remember, it's all surf music. John, I, ha I have a uh, fun fact for you. And he's like, yeah, well, what's that? You know, and I told him, I said, hey, my dad, you know, it's got this song. It's on your movie. I said, right when you and Sam Jackson are right about to walk out of the diner, the very last scene of Pulp Fiction, the song starts playing during the movie and it runs all the way through the credits, the whole song. And he was so cool. He was asking me a bunch of questions about the band and the song and saying he loved the song. And then I'm going to give you my best Travolta impression because I'll never forget what he said. He goes, that's one of the coolest factoids anyone's ever told me. <laughs> and I was like, factoid, interesting. And yeah. you're John Travolta. People tell you stories all the time. But he was so cool and, and so nice. And I actually interviewed him and Kelly Preston together. And it, it, it's so tragic to, that she's no longer here. Yeah. And just some of the loss that he's had. But super kind soul. Did you ever have a guest that you were like hoping would leave the show as soon as possible? Uh, I will say one of my most disappointing interviews and a guy that I really loved before, loved his music, thought he was, you know, so talented and I was so disappointed by was Justin Timberlake. Wow. Yeah. 
not kind, very arrogant. You know, a lot of actors and comedians are very insecure people. You know, it's one thing I've definitely learned from from being around them. It's and I think athletes on the other side, athletes are pretty confident guys, I think, and, and, and women, because I think to be a professional athlete, you sort of have to like, look at Joe Burrow. He is a little cocky, but he is really exudes with confidence. Yes. Whereas I think a lot of actors and comedians are very insecure and they need that constant sort of ego fed. Athletes, generally speaking, particularly in the last number of 15, 20, 25 years, and particularly with the internet, uh, have really become better to talk to. I found that. Uh, they realize that their interviews could wind up anywhere. They could wind up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you know, YouTube, TikTok, you name it. I think they become more educated. Yeah, and I think I, I do. And and they're obviously they're more involved in social issues. You know, I don't think I mean, you know, remember Jordan didn't ever got involved in things like that. And now today, I think athletes are a lot more cognizant of that. And they're talking to these things all the time, right? They're making their Instagram videos. So I think they're getting more comfortable. They're a little more comfortable with the interview process. If you want to hear more guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, all you have to do is go to Last Word on Sports on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. You can listen to the many wonderful interviews we've done dating back to January of 2021. We resume with Ryan Cheverini on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I want to go back to your family. You had four brothers, but unfortunately, one of them took his own life some 14 years ago. He was only 20. Take me back to that time, Ryan, because I believe you were 30-something. Could you understand why this happened, how you coped with it then, and how you cope with it today? Yeah, worst day of my life, George. Uh, it was a Wednesday morning. I was due to go to Hellas Hall for bears and got the call from my mom. And just she was I, I knew something was wrong because I missed a couple calls. It was really early. And I remember hearing the phone kind of vibrate and I didn't answer it right away. And then I remember hearing it again. And I and it was like six in the morning and I answered it. And it's just it's like I could replay that phone call in my head. She's just, you know, inconsolable. And so is my stepfather. And, you know, they found him and. It was, it was the worst. That's the worst thing a family can go through. And my brother was 11 years younger than me. He actually lived with me in college. I helped take care of him. I went to his parent teacher conference meetings because we had some family issues going on there and uh, took care of him like he was my son. So that I, I took a, a month off of work, George, I, I flew to Cleveland where they were living. And, you know, we had to go through that whole just agonizing, agonizing time. And and I didn't comprehend it. I didn't understand it because at that time, you know, mental health really wasn't talked about like it is now. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, so, I'm so happy to see where we have come. You know, we're not there yet, but you know, just the, even the PSAs, it's okay to not feel okay. We didn't have any of that. Like when you and I were young, it was like, oh, toughen up, stop being a wuss. You know, you couldn't talk about 
feelings or being depressed. And, you know, my brother did not do any drugs or alcohol, completely sober, which is a huge misconception with, you know, committing suicide. Uh, he was going through a bad breakup at the time. And, but he, he was, I think he was bipolar and we could never really get it diagnosed. It's a very difficult thing to get diagnosed. And he was 20 years old. So he, he would have to be open to that. And he wasn't. And he was going through a tough time trying to figure out his life. You know, it took him an extra year to graduate high school because he was a class clown and wasn't great with school. Um, he couldn't figure out what he wanted to do after school. You know, he was going through a really tough time. And but we never thought something like this could happen. Never, 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 never. And it wasn't until it happened that I started educating myself about it because society really hasn't. You know, there was a long time standing in the media, as you know, that suicides were not even reported because they were too afraid it was going to entice other people to do it. Very primitive thinking. So, you know, I, I was I was silent about it for five years. Uh, I came back to work after a month and I'm thinking nobody knows except for people in the sports office. But it turns out years later, I found out everybody knew because you know how newsrooms are. <laughs> But nobody said anything to me about it, which I was good, which I was glad. And it wasn't until we did a show on mental health on Windy City Live that my producer, who had heard that I had a connection to suicide, asked me to share it. And it, it was the hardest thing I ever did on TV. My my heart was racing. I wanted to back out of that all the way up until we did it. Uh, I mean, my heart was just in my chest. And um, but I shared the story, and it was it turned out to be incredibly cathartic. And I started speaking publicly for American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and started sharing my platform because I just felt like I was doing a disservice to all the other families and people that had been through it. And I, I remember reading Tony Dungy's book and Tony Dungy lost a son to suicide. And I'm thinking mm -hmm. he was brave enough to come out and talk about this because there's a lot of shame and stigmatism. You know, there's a lot of big stigma with, with it. So to a family. And I, I had to talk to my mom about it and make sure she was okay and comfortable with me sharing that. But um, it, it's something that, yeah, we'll, we'll never completely understand because we're in the right mindset to, well, we don't know what it's like to, to not want to live. But um, I, I always wonder what he'd be doing now. He'd be 35. And uh, yeah, I was just wondering what he would be doing now if he would have figured out his life, but it, it's, it's, it's the most gut-wrenching thing you can go through. And I've dealt with a lot of loss in my life, but nothing like that. You mentioned your other brother. He is a fraternal twin, the football coach. You have a couple of other brothers. Uh, are they into sports or at least one? I told you, my dad, my dad and mom, they, they have a lot of kids. <laughs> my dad has five boys from uh, from four different marriages. Yeah. So he was a rock star at heart. Uh, my other brothers, uh, actually, it's funny. The, I have a friend that says there's a Chev for that. That's her her line because uh, we all do something different. My brother's a football coach now. I have another brother who is a grease monkey and works uh, with hot rods and in fixing up cars. I have another brother that graduated a law school and he's about to take the bar. He's the baby in the family. He's 30. And then, uh, and then I have another brother that just has like a normal blue collar job. So yeah, it's kind of crazy. We've, we've all kind of done different things in our life, but, and we don't get to see each other a lot, but around Christmas time, you know, we all get together and sometimes we, we might think there's another brother out there somewhere that might show up for Christmas.
<laughs> you mentioned you've acted and you're a musician. So expound on both of those professions. It's something I've always wanted to do. Uh, and people go, do you have any regrets? The only regret I ever have is I really wanted to be an actor. I, I minored in theater in college. I did acting in high school and I always wanted to do it. But uh, back then you didn't have Uber. So I couldn't have been an Uber driver. And I had worked in restaurants for like three years. And God bless all of our restaurant workers. That is a tough job. And I, I was so burned out on being a waiter. I didn't want to do the LA thing where I was waiting tables and auditioning and I just didn't, I didn't want to do it. So I never pursued that out of college. Instead, I, I got a broadcasting job right away in Montana and I, I chose that route, but I always in the back of my head was like, what would have happened if I would have went to LA and did this? So it's been really cool because now that I, I've gotten to you know, have my own show and and do the sports thing. I've had a few opportunities. So I, I recently did a Lifetime movie called Switched Before Birth, where I played an attorney. I don't understand. What are you telling us? There's no easy way to put this, but there was an error at implantation. Look, what happened no. is one of the embryos was not yours. Stop, stop. What are you talking about? Hold on, hold on. How did this hold happen? On, hold on, hold on. I carried someone else's baby. No, you biological didn't. parents have been notified. What? They're here I'm... and anxious to meet with you, but you are under no legal obligation no, to do no so. No way. We just As found this out. Yes. Uh, I got to do an episode of Shameless. I did an episode of General Hospital. So now for me, it's really fun because to make a living as an actor is one of the toughest things you could do. Uh, but for me to kind of dabble in it, it's just really fun. It's like my it's like my alter ego moonlighting thing, you know? You've done a lot of interesting things, Ryan, but one of them that stands out happened to be flying and at a very, very fast rate. Oh, flying with the Blue Angels, coolest thing I've ever done on TV. Those things are just incredibly built. And here's the thing, George, is when you're in that, and it's an F-18, the Blue Angels, it's as sturdy as I'm sitting on this chair right now, going 700 miles an hour. That, that was one of the coolest things I've ever done. When this podcast drops, you will have also done something rather interesting, officiating a wedding. I will officiate my fifth wedding, George. In Your April. fifth wedding? Fifth. I started with my college best friend asking me to do it. And so I, I spent a lot of time on it. You know, it takes you... You can literally get the license in five right. minutes. So anybody can be an officiant. I'm not an ordained minister. Big difference. And um, But I do forgive everybody of their sins that they're about to commit after <laughs> reception. <laughs> and so, yeah, now my nickname is Rev Rye. I had Rev Rye! To, I had a chance to, um, one of the coolest things I've ever done is my co-host Val asked me to officiate her wedding. And I did that uh, about a year and a half ago in Mexico. And I mean, people always ask you, you know, hey, is, is your relationship real or what is it like off camera? Are you guys as close as you appear on TV? Because I know some anchors fight. And and I was like, she literally is my sister. She asked me to officiate her wedding. Like, you can't really get better than that. You've already had a whirlwind life, Ryan. How would you best describe yourself? I would best describe myself as as someone who has an immense amount of gratitude, I, um, I'm very fortunate and I'm very blessed. You know, I didn't come from a lot. You know, my parents divorced when I was very young. My mom struggled with drugs and alcohol when I was very young, which I think when people see you on TV, 
they see you in a nice suit. They, you know, they see you're well put together or whatever. And they assume that you are just, you were handed all this and you were very, you know, just privileged and not talented, I guess. I guess some people just assume that when they see you for the first time, see anybody on TV. And I, you know, I've gone through some real problems when I was young and everybody goes through things, right? But it's what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And you have to learn how to channel those things. I remember my brother and I, when we were young, going through really difficult times in our family and, and with with our mom. And um, and we, we I remember we said to each other, we kind of made a pact to each other when we were young. We're not going to raise our kids like this. We're not going to live like this. We're, we're going to better our situation. And we did. And, and we did that, obviously, through sports it was a big, big influence on my life. I mean, whether you play at a high level or not, it teaches you so much about you know teamwork and camaraderie and chemistry and being unselfish and sacrificing and and um and a regimen to like be disciplined. So uh, I, I think I'm a, I'm a person of, of great gratitude based on the experiences I've had in life and to know that you know I've come out of it as a stronger person and um, I just really try to pay it forward now, you know, to give back to the city. The city has been so good to me, people that have been so good to me and, um, and just be thankful, right? Like you can't, there's a saying that um, you can't help everybody, but everybody can help somebody. And that I sort of live by that mantra. I have to believe that there is at least one more thing you haven't done that you'd like to do. Have you considered it? I think starring a major motion picture, George. <laughs> I've done some bit parts. Oh, listen, I'll stand in line and buy the ticket for that and then watch you become ultra famous. <laughs> that would be incredible. I think my favorite actor is Tom Cruise. If I could ever do a movie with Tom Cruise, now that would be uh that would be fun. But yeah, you know, I I do I play music and I that's one of my passionate hobbies. And I take that after my dad. I'm not nearly as talented as a singer, but I have released a few songs and we've done them for charity and raising money for uh, cancer awareness. I lost my mom to cancer and lost my brother to suicide. So we've done a lot of um, fundraisers. So the music thing is really fun too. Uh, but I think the major motion picture would be would be the icing on the cake. I asked this final question to all my guests. If not for the TV business, Ryan, what would you have been? That's a great question, George. I probably would be doing something sports related. I, I probably would have been a coach like my brother. I, I think I like to mentor young people and help people become the best version of themselves. So I, I think I'd probably be doing something in coaching. Yeah, I think I'd probably be working with, with high school kids and, and probably co maybe coaching high school or something like that. Well, I knew this was going to be fun, but it was fascinating. One of the more fascinating interviews I've done. You're really a pleasure to talk to. I haven't seen you in a long time, so one of these days soon. And I wish you the best of luck, whatever you do, whether it's continuing sports or becoming a movie star in which you win an Academy Award. Ryan Cheverini, thank you so much for telling me a story. I don't know. George, thank you so much for having me. It's been a true pleasure. And uh, yeah, the next time I see you, lunch is on me, man. My thanks to ABC7 Chicago, Windy City Live, CBS Sports, Surfrider by the Lively Ones, and Switched Before Birth, the movie for those absolutely wonderful highlights.
And my thanks as always to the people behind the scenes that help make this wonderful podcast possible. TJ Reeves for putting us on the map, Will Hatzel for his crafty editing, Nick Tochi for our wonderful graphics, and to our new partner, Last Word on Sports. And to our presenting sponsor, Mr. Duct. You can find them at mrductcleaning.com. Tune in next week when we feature another intriguing guest on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. <laughs>